Good evening, this is Alicia Bales. Stay tuned for a special program, presentations from day one of the Ocean Life Symposium, organized last week by Mendonoma Whale and Seal Study and KGUA Public Media in Wallala. I was baptized as a little child They took me into the church to save my soul And the priest prayed to his God above As he dipped my little body in that water bowl Oh, oh, oh I'm made out of water Water is the only thing can quench my thirst And I'm always trying to get back the water from that very first breath on my day of The third annual Ocean Life Symposium took place last week, organized by Mendonoma Whale and Seal Study and KGUA Public Media in Wallala. The symposium is broadcast on KGUA in Wallala and streamed online at their YouTube page and includes a week of presentations by local and national experts about the health of our oceans. Tonight, we're pleased to bring you the first two speakers from this year's Ocean Life Symposium. Many thanks to the KGUA crew, Peggy, Leanne, and Roberta, for sending us audio of the event to rebroadcast on KZYX. The first speaker is Richard Charter, Senior Fellow at the Ocean Foundation. Richard has worked for over four decades to ensure protection for fragile marine ecosystems and sensitive coastlines. He is currently working to protect the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary and to advance the designation of the proposed new Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary on the Central California coast. His talk is titled, Climate Chaos as an Excuse for Further Destruction of Our Environment. After Richard, we'll hear from Sherry Goforth-Eby of the Mendonoma Gray Whale Photo ID Project. She'll talk about photo evidence of year-round presence and residency of gray whales. Sherry's Mendonoma Gray Whale Photo ID Project is a citizen science effort to photo document and catalog visiting and returning eastern Pacific gray whales of the northern Sonoma and southern Mendocino County coasts. Stay tuned now for presentations from day one of the Ocean Life Symposium, which took place last week in Wallala. I'm always trying to get back to the water from that very first breath on my day of earth. Our first speaker today is Richard Charter. Richard's a senior fellow at the Ocean Foundation. Today he's going to speak about climate chaos as an excuse for further destruction of our environment. For over four decades, Richard Charter has worked to ensure protection for fragile marine ecosystems and many of our sensitive coastlines. He was integral in establishing a moratorium on offshore drilling. He worked to support the creation and expansion of many of our national marine sanctuaries. Why don't you join me in welcoming Richard Charter. Thank you. Today as we gather virtually to celebrate our oceans, we are reminded that 50 years ago, ordinary coastal citizens right here in California, particularly on the Mendocino-Sonoma coast, 
joined with their local elected officials and stopped a federal offshore oil and gas lease sale called Sale 53, igniting what has now become a global movement to protect coastal waters from industrialization and petroleum contamination, such as that which is still washing ashore as tar balls from Huntington Beach to La Jolla. Were it not for our coastal activism, what we are now seeing along the coast of Orange County could easily have been taking place right here, right now, as a result of a proposed subsea oil pipeline extending from the Point Arena offshore basin to the planned oil processing facility that targeted the little village, believe it or not, of Manchester on the Mendocino coast during the same era. Recognizing that carbon pumped out of the seabed to wind up in the atmosphere would damage our climate, it has taken the intervening half century in a series of wildfires, superstorms, and ecological catastrophes to convince the powers that be in our society that we need to change how our society obtains and uses the raw materials of virtually every industry and then disposes of the waste. Now, as we shift to new ways to trying to be easier on the planet and lighter on the land, we need to apply the precautionary principle to ensure that even our efforts to secure a better future do not themselves cause further, often unforeseeable damage to the web of life on which we all depend. So today I will provide a couple of quick snapshots, examples from different disciplines of the steps we need to take to avoid allowing climate panic to mislead us in our quest for a better and more compatible way to live here gracefully and with respect for our fellow inhabitants of this global ecosystem. Midway between Bodega Bay and Jenner on the Sonoma Coast is a spectacular piece of land called the Scotty Creek Valley. It is totally unique. It has two different kinds of protected wetlands. We recognized very early in the process of creating our local coastal program here in Sonoma County after the Coastal Act came into effect. We'd realized that this place was unique and made it a particularly specially designated what is called a scenic landscape unit. As of last week, this place was virtually totally destroyed. In spite of its protection, in spite of the layers of officialdom that had said they were going to protect it, and I think there's an example and a warning here, a cautionary note for other people along the coast who uh, look at parts of Highway 1. This came about because a long time ago, before there was a planning, planning department in Sonoma County at all, and because there was no subdivision map act, some agricultural landowner decided that between Highway 1 and the ocean, they could subdivide the land into a series of lots. And those lots, at the time they were sold, were crumbling into the ocean. And they have since climbed, crumbled into the ocean even more. And as a result, uh, that attracted the attention of uh, Caltrans, who said, we need to relocate Coast Highway 1. Instead of just moving it a little ways inland, they decided they needed a bridge similar to what one would find in the middle of San Jose to cross a little eight-foot stream, which I've been watching since about 1956, which has never gone over the road. And so today we are facing a model, it's being called. About 100 officials met there on this site uh, just last week and hailed it as a model for adapting to climate change on the California coast. I would suggest that it is anything but a model and we're gonna to have to get better at learning how to make compatible projects fit into what's already here. 
We have seen models before that worked. Highway 280 was built through the Portola Valley, south of uh, San Francisco, down to Los Gatos. A landscape architect named Lawrence Halperin was retained to design every element of that feature so that it would fit into the landscape. And there's a world-famous example called the Paris-Lexington Road in the EU, where fitting into what exists on our on our coastline is going to be increasingly important as we address sea level rise. This is not going to be easy. And we also are facing at the same time a shift in where and how we obtain energy, particularly electrical energy. So the physics of extraction of mechanical energy from a real-time planetary system, such as offshore floating wind, rather than from stored hydrocarbons that were put off the coast long ago, is not a great mystery. There have been wind generators for decades and electric cars. Uh, my father drove one when, like the 1930s. Mamie Lovins told us a few decades ago that we were going to move to renewable energy and it would be combined with energy efficiency and painless energy conservation. The efficiency and conservation part has been forgotten as our society, particularly the current administration, both in Washington and Sacramento, moves forward to harvest offshore wind energy off the Humboldt County coast and off of the Morro Bay, uh, Southern Big Sur region. What is being harvested is very interesting because it's the wind that drives our coastal upwelling system. Our upwelling system where the wind blows over coastal waters, the surface waters move offshore, and cold nutrient-rich water moves toward the surface. The density of energy available as wind energy is only found in certain areas. It is found off of Cape Mendocino, off of Humboldt County, and off of Del Norte County, and along the Oregon coast in Northern California. In Southern California, because they are not going to target National Marine Sanctuaries for offshore wind, the targets are primarily Morro Bay and up to about Cambria, and cables coming ashore at Diablo Canyon. So the targets for floating offshore wind are limited. The impacts are more complicated than most people are given to understand because each floating turbine is connected to the seafloor with three to five cables that anchor it to very large concrete anchors on the seafloor. And then each turbine is connected to the next turbine with a draped cable carrying electricity to an offshore substation and then to a subsea cable that comes to a power station on shore. This is a whole industrial infrastructure on a part of the California coast, both Humboldt and Morro Bay, that has not been targeted for any kind of industrialization before. The primary lessees, the, the companies expressing the most interest in floating offshore wind off California, the big companies are Shell, who happens to have installed the pipeline that just leaked uh, oil off of Orange County. BP, who of course had the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, and a company called Equinor, which until a couple of years ago was called Stat Oil, also one of the largest offshore oil and gas development companies on the planet. So offshore oil drillers are shifting to floating offshore wind and anticipating gathering from the federal government federal offshore leases to harvest offshore wind, and from the state government in state waters off of Vandenberg, state leases to harvest floating offshore wind. 
this is not something we can stop. There are some well-paid consultants giving to saying, yes, there will be no problem. But we need to pay very close attention to some of the details of how this is going to work and what the impacts will be on our marine environment. Obviously, our fishing industry here, a sustainable artisanal fishery, is very concerned about loss of some of their prime fishing grounds. There are biological hotspots associated with the upwelling system that is characterized by this targeting to gather the highest wind energy density. There are lights on the floating wind arrays that attract certain species of seabirds, which then fly in circles and die on the deck. We know that from offshore drilling rigs. And there are electromagnetic fields that combined with very loud noises are going to probably create some complications for whale migration along this coast. We don't know the exact nature of that those complications, but we do know that when you add up the number of turbines that are being planned, for example, off of Humboldt County, and the number of cables draped to the seafloor and between the turbines, it starts looking like a chain link fence for whales. So we need to learn who to trust in this process and not just accept, don't worry, be happy answers from this industry, even though we know that we aren't going to stop it. We're not trying to stop it. And we need to be careful that we don't wind up driving electric cars with batteries obtained by strip mining the ocean for lithium or driving on overscaled highways torn through our most sensitive and long protected coastal wetlands as we watch the coast of Humboldt and Big Sur be blighted by massive industrial parks and the deep ocean in other parts of the planet chip mined for lithium for the batteries. These are choices we're facing right now. There are public comment periods open among many of these public agencies that are letting leases in these areas. So I encourage uh, the public who has saved this coast before from everything from, you know, a nuclear reactor at Bodega Head to the dredging of Petty Island at Jenner to offshore drilling along this entire coast. It's up to the people who live here, I would say. That's who saved it last time. And finally, I'd like to touch on the most counterintuitive plan of 1998, which is still around in 2021, and that is proposals that drop a ten and a half of uh, anticoagulant ecosystem poison to sterilize the Southeast Farallon Islands. This plan is a little bit hard to understand. It's in the most protected piece of ocean on the planet. It's in the middle of our National Marine Sanctuary. It is uh, surrounded by two state marine protected areas that were created by the Marine Life Protection Act. And it's in the middle of some very critical fishing grounds. But the idea is that in this most protected area on the planet, we have a problem. And that problem is 12, 10 or 12, nobody's sure, burrowing owls, a protected species which migrates from the coast of Marin out to the Farallon Islands, attracted by a bloom each fall, uh, introduced mice that either wound up there when the Russians were hunting for sea otters along this coast, uh, might have come ashore then, might have come ashore in the 1500s when the first explorers came ashore on the Farallons. These mice attract burrowing owls, which come to the island to eat mice. The mice population crashes 
rather precipitously. And when the mice disappear, the burrowing owls stick around and sometimes predate on the eggs and chicks of an iconic seabird called the ashy storm petrel. Ironically, the ashy storm petrel is actually one of the birds that would be most threatened by floating offshore wind and the lights if the lighting isn't done right. So the plan is that anticoagulant rodenticides, which are not too popular these days and which have been outlawed in the local coastal plan of the Santa Monica Mountains of Malibu, soon to be Ventura County and the state of California passed AB 1178, uh, prohibiting their use under most circumstances in the state of California on land. State of Massachusetts is doing the same thing right about now, as is the province of British Columbia and 17 communities in British Columbia that are tired of watching their owls fall dead on their front lawns as a result of inadvertent exposure to these chemicals. This is what is targeting the Farallons right now. The locality could not be more sensitive. The density of wildlife on it, both marine mammals and seabirds, could not be more important biologically planet-wide. The Fish and Wildlife Service, who's behind the plan, says, well, if we only kill a little over a thousand western gulls, they will recover their population within 20 years, which doesn't sound like a particularly good rationale to me. You have ground zero for the biology, ground zero for an ecosystem poison that is well known to kill more than just the mice. In fact, it has to kill everything on the island, and then other animals are gradually brought back to hopefully wind up with a mouse-free island, although this chemical on other islands has failed to eliminate mice fully 38% of the time. The way it kills animals is slow, two to three weeks of internal bleeding. It is inhumane by any standard, not so much worrying about the mice, they're not supposed to be there anyway, but certainly raptors that feed on poisonous mice, gulls that feed on poisoned mice, gulls that migrate to the mainland. This is basically a carpet bombing with a poison that kills everything. These birds aren't going to all die on the Farallons, the what are called incidental bykill, a word that I don't care for, but that's what they call it. There will be raptors from the mainland, there will be gulls from the mainland, and gulls from the mainland could wind up dying, staggering around on Fisherman's Wharf or the waterfront in San Francisco, impressing tourists as they die slowly. So this is something that is coming before the California Coast Commission this December, we now understand. Today, Joe Biden named a new head of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's taking him a while to get around to naming a director for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Her name is Martha Williams. We're not quite sure where she is going to come down on this particular proposal. It's been getting more and more controversial, obviously, over the years. I'm sure a lot of folks in this lister listership have been following it. We need to start thinking about changing our policies because we face changed circumstances. The poison drop on the Farallons, believe it or not, is being rationalized as a way to combat climate change. Climate change is becoming the catch-all word for anything that anybody comes up with as a great idea. And on the Farallons, I don't quite understand how it became connected to climate change, but 
against that backdrop, communities, and as I say, the state of California, municipalities in British Columbia, the province of British Columbia, and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts are all banning the same poison. So we need to watch out for things that are greenwashed, I think is the term that historically has been applied to things like this. Climate change is the new greenwashing. So we, recognizing that this is not a particularly easy scenario to understand, we created a free book, which you can download right now at a website called Poison Free Sanctuary, one word, poisonfreesanctuary.org, Poison Free Sanctuary. It's very short. It's in language anybody can understand. It's also based on sound science. Each page has several links back to the actual peer-reviewed scientific studies on which the book is based. They're live links in the Kindle ebook. So if you go to poisonfreesanctuary.org, you'll be able to download this book and you'll be able to get a grip on what's going on at the December meeting of the California Coast Commission to determine whether dropping a deadly ecosystem poison in the middle of our National Marine Sanctuary is a good idea or not. And if you want to be able to send an email right now today to the Coastal Commission, skip the book, you can send an email to Farallon Islands, that's one R, two L's, Farallon Islands, one word, Farallon Islands at coastal.ca.gov and just say, stop the drop. Don't do this. I mean, this is something that has been getting hotter and hotter for the last several years. And I think it's time that the public that has protected this coast from so many things for so long protects it once again. And with that, I will conclude my presentation. I thank KGOA and everybody involved for this annual ocean conference. It's a good way to get the latest out to the public, and I am happy to be part of it. And I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And thank you. We are so happy to have you this morning, Richard Charter, my friend from Bodega Bay, where I used to live. And Richard, you know, you brought us up to date on so many of the projects you are working on. And, you know, you started by saving us from a nuclear power plant in Bodega Bay, now known as the hole in the head. So Richard's been at this for a very, very long time. And uh, I have one quick question. How are your efforts being met in uh, Washington, D.C. these days? It depends on which issue. In terms of stopping offshore drilling, which, as I say, began right here on the Sonoma Mendocino coasts a long time ago, because we had in the Bring Back Better legislation, the Budget Reconciliation Act, we had a permanent ban on new offshore oil and gas leasing affecting the entire Pacific coast, California, Oregon, Washington. That is still in the bill, to my knowledge, at this moment. The oil industry was lobbying to have that removed from the bill. However, they had a little problem off of Orange County at a very bad time in front of a county that will obviously have a lot to do with determining, for example, the partisan leadership of the next House of Representatives, as well as a lot of other things. So we think we might get that. Great. Well, that, uh, you know, sad news for Los Angeles, but good news for all of us and in, in, in our battles that are face us in this climate change that is, we're in climate change. The other question that I have before we go on is, what about climate change deniers? Are, are we up against some of those in Congress as well? 
Well, we're up against almost anything that could possibly be believed in Congress. There are anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, anti-climate and climate deniers. And I have come to believe in my lifetime working with the U.S. Congress that it's not a matter of if there are people who believe contrary to the public, they won't last long. The public uh-huh. leads in America. I believe that I believe in democracy. I don't worry too much about them. Question in Congress is always just like in a local board of supervisors. Do we have the votes? And I think on climate in the White House and in the Congress, it's there. We're there. Well, thank you so much, Richard. And I love ending on those words about the people leading. And that's exactly what we all have to do. This is Peggy Berryhill at KGUA in Gualala and saying momentarily farewell to our friend Richard Charter from Bodega Bay, who works tirelessly on all of our behalf. Leanne Lindsay is with me. And the man in black, George Callis, is with us as well from the Sea Ranch, another one of our local voices here. So if you have questions or comments on any speaker, you can go to Ocean Life Symposium, all one long word, Ocean Life Symposium at Gmail, and we will share those with our speakers, and you can find out more about Richard. Just Google him, go to the Ocean Foundation, and find out more about Richard, and we'll let you know about all of our other speakers. Thank you, Richard. We're going to say farewell. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. You are listening to a special broadcast of Day One of the Ocean Life Symposium, presented last week in Wallala by Mendenoma Whale and Seal Study and KGUA. You just heard Richard Charter of the Ocean Foundation. Coming up next is a talk by Sherry Goforth-Eby. This is KZYXNZ. Yes, and so if you do have questions, you can email those to oceanlifesymposium at gmail.com. If you want to see the schedule for this whole week of the Ocean Life Symposium, go to kgua.org and click on Schedule, and you will see the entire week of speakers. You click through, and you can see their backgrounds and their titles of their talks, and this is the first day of the Ocean Life Symposium. You can also listen to us on 88.3 FM along the coast, and online at kgua.org. We've got an Air Pocket app in the upper left-hand corner. When you click on Listen Live, you can save that to any digital device and also on apps Radio Garden and TuneIn. And then we also are live on YouTube. So you can watch now or you can watch later at your leisure. And now we're going to ask George, who's up next? Thanks, Leanne. What a stimulating presentation from Richard Charter, wasn't that? Our next speaker is Sherry Goforth-Eby of the Mendenoma Gray Whale Photo ID Project. Sherry moved to the Mendocino Coast in 2017, where her interest in whales began. Sherry's Mendenoma Gray Whale Photo ID Project is a modest citizen science project where she photographs and catalogs these giants of the coast. I'm Sherry Goforth, Evie, and I live in Wallala, California, and it's indeed an honor to have the opportunity to present my project at the Ocean Life Symposium 2021. My Gray Whale Photo ID project is a humble citizen science adventure where I photograph and document local eastern Pacific gray whales as often as possible throughout the year. My efforts are an attempt to contribute to the greater understanding and conservation of these amazing creatures. I believe that a single photograph in the right hands can be a document for change. My observations are on the land which has been the home of the Pomo people, the Kashaya Band of Pomo, and the Coast Miwok for thousands of years, and I'm honored to be a guest in their homelands. 
I've geared this presentation towards encouraging others to get involved with photo documentation of our local gray whales since there's been some interest locally. I've included some slides on methods, gear, and data. Thank you for indulging me. I photo document Eastern Pacific gray whales year round on the rugged Southern Mendocino and Northern Sonoma County coasts from three primary locations and a fourth less frequently. I, my first, <clears throat> I observe and photograph from essentially four local sites, two as part of my regular daily observation spots and two less frequently. My first preferred, preferred site is the Bluff Trail in downtown Wallala, Mendocino County, California. We pronounce it Wallala. Wallala shares the coastline with our neighbors on the Sea Ranch just across the bridge in Sonoma County. And the cove waters are part of the unincorporated area of Sonoma County. We usually see a few gray whales foraging the cove most of spring, summer, and fall, but far less during the winter portion of the southbound migration. For gray whales in Wallala Point Cove this year, the last one on August 2nd was a visitor I call epicenter. My second preferred location is Saunders Reef, the coastal view, mile marker 10.5, which is about 10 miles uh, north on Highway 1. We often see gray whales during all four seasons, but most of most interest to me are the summer and fall locals who will stay for a few days to a few weeks and some stay longer. Both Wallala and Saunders Reef areas see gray whales foraging in close, that is within about 600 meters or less. But Saunders is windier, less protected than the Bluff Trail in Wallala. Rough water, high winds, rain and fog can make it difficult to collect photo data. My third site is the Pointerina Lighthouse in Mendocino County, California. If I'm not seeing gray whales at the other places, I'll drive north to the lighthouse where I will usually find two researchers sitting in camp chairs counting whales. Sometimes gray whales are seen foraging near the closer kelp beds. The Lighthouse Peninsula projects farther west into the Pacific Ocean, and it's even more exposed to severe weather than Saunders Reef, and is also prone to heavy fog. The fourth site is Bodega Head West, Bodega Bay in Sonoma County, California. I photograph passing or foraging gray whales who show up during my volunteer shift with the Seabird Monitoring Program through Stewards of the Coast and Redwoods. As with the other sites, Bodega Head is unprotected and prone to high winds, rough water, and fog. Photo documenting gray whales for identification is not new, and I didn't know of any of their projects at the time I started, so I just flailed around and forged ahead. I began observing gray whales in late 2018. I joined Whale Watch Docent Program through the Stewards of the Coast and Redwoods in 2019, and began making almost daily observations and notes of gray whales in our area from spring of 2019 on. I began wondering if of all the gray whales I have observed passing our coast, how could I know whether or not I'm counting the same gray whales more than once? I needed to identify these grays, but I could not make the identifications with binoculars. I would need photos to study their individual markings and IDs for, for ID purposes. I acquired better photo gear in late summer 2019 and had better success capturing identifying marks on gray whales but useful images were limited to mid-cove distances or closer. I studied photography at the somewhat esteemed YouTube University School of Photography and adapted camera settings from the expert tutorials uh, of Birds in Flight. 
I spent hours in post-processing, cropping, sharpening, adjusting contrast, and trying anything that would yield more useful images of markings. I quickly discovered that I needed better resolution photos. Uh, basically, I shoot tiny specks in the ocean, whales, and I crop hard to enlarge the subject to glean bits of detail. I bought a high resolution, uh, high megapixel camera and upgraded to a longer range lens. It was a steep learning curve, but immediately I began getting better detailed photos of closer whales and very useful photos of gray whales well beyond the central cove and reef. It's important to have support staff. This is my faithful assistant and navigator, Ringo. He doesn't do data entry, he doesn't answer phones, doesn't clean gear, and his navigation skills are limited to pointing out pocket gophers, but he's loyal and shows up for work every day. So who gets photographed? I document gray whales at a distance of around 800 meters or less, or a roughly about a half a mile or less from shore. The limits are set by the camera gear. I'm not limited to those geographic distances. If presented with the opportunity, I will photograph gray whales spotted from the boat well offshore, uh, since that would put me in the range for good detailed ID photos. From the bluffs, I generally don't count whales out in deeper water, since they're out of my camera range and therefore too far out to ID. Many of these grays will likely be counted in other surveys. So what do I do with my photos? Identifying gray whales in my photos is an ongoing process. I want to contribute to the greater understanding of these whales, so I've begun submitting my photos to Cascadia Research Collective and Happy Whale, who have sophisticated computer matching software systems. They identify whales, assign them a unique number, and catalog them in a searchable database. Laguna San Ignacio Ecosystem Science Program makes their photo catalogs available online. I use analog photo matching, which just means I sit with my iPad and by hand, sort gray whale photos and screenshots into albums and scroll through other people's databases looking for matches. My data sheets reflect the bare beginnings of the cross-referencing process, but I have already matched a few of our local gray whales as members of the Pacific Coast Feeding Group. I use a very simple numbering system consisting of my initials, the first year I photographed the whale, and a hyphen followed by a unique number assigned to that individual. My number, my numbering system is more of a holding pattern until a match can be made with Cascadia Research, Happy Whale, or San Ignacio. <clears throat> While also introducing some of the photo documented gray whales, I'd like to explain the terms I use. First, we have visitors. A visitor is any gray whale seen in our local area once, usually without enough data for full documentation or ID. These are gray whales are often on the migration route. It makes sense that we see a lot more one-time visitors during migration since they tend to be focused on their destination and are just passing through. We also have repeaters. A repeater is a gray whale documented two or more days and usually I'll get enough photos of both sides of the dorsal knuckle area and hopefully top and bottom of the flukes to assign an ID. This beauty I call ticker was fully photographed and documented twice in March of 2021 and then not seen here since. Then we have locals. Locals are an offshoot of a repeater. A local is a gray whale observed and photographed, uh, documented multiple times during one season and I, assigned an ID. 
The label local is also a term I apply to a familiar gray whale, uh, one often with an unscientific amount of affection attached to its presence. This includes one of my favorites who I call Bridal. Bridal is my most photographed gray whale, documented in our area at least 16 separate occasions from August through November of 2020. 2020. Um, but I've not seen Bridal this year yet. <clears throat> Renee is Rainier is another gray who I consider to be a local. I photographed Rainier on 12 separate occasions from October through December of 2020 and one additional encounter on March 22nd, 2021. I'm always happy to see this intrepid gray show up with its assortment of orchid toothrakes and gnaw marks on its dorsal knuckle. I suspect Rainier will move up to resident status, but not just yet. All of the observations occurred in a period of just under six months with a two month gap. The last sighting occurred in March during the spring migration. <clears throat> so a resident, as of this year, I finally have data to confirm that we have residents. A resident gray whale exhibiting site fidelity who is documented returning to our area and utilizing our resources for two or more years. I've identified three gray whales who have earned the title of resident. The resident bronze medal goes to Da Dit Da with multiple sightings from July to November and with a documented return in July and August of 2021. The resident silver medal goes to Taillight. Taillight is another gray with multiple sightings in December and October of 2020, and a documented return this year in August. And the resident gold medal goes to Spotlight with three years of site fidelity. I first photographed Spotlight in November of 2018 when he or she was close to the Guadalala Point Cove. It was a lucky series of photos. I have a few usable photos for 2019, but very few since my camera gear at the time was limited to resolution and reach. Spotlight returned in August, September, and November of 2020, and has a documented return in July of this year, this summer 2021. So how do I keep track of these grays and how do I collect my data? Metadata is important. My daily observation metadata logging is done in pencil on a form I designed with spaces for the data I'm interested in. I collect information from several sources, um, the weather sources, depending on the proximity cell service and Wi-Fi. First source is my personal weather station, which reports to the internet. It's great in areas with Wi-Fi or cell service. Without a connection, I use a weather flow meter, a handheld meter with a large array of data available. It Bluetooths my cell to my cell phone and uploads and stores weather data in the app. It's powerful and reliable. Seawater temperature data comes from the Bodega Ocean Observing Node, about three quarters of a mile offshore from the Bodega Marine Lab in Bodega Bay, California. I use a Tides app for the up to the minute tidal information, moon phases and sunrise sunset. The TimeStep camera app allows me to shoot a weather photo with my camera, camera phone and the photo is saved with location, GPS coordinates, and date and time. The last app uh, of note is Date Stamper, and it's invaluable for marking photos with time and date. 
derived from the camera's embedded photo uh, information. I use it to find out the date and time of unmarked photos oftentimes sent, sent to me. It's accurate and it has saved an incredible amount of time compared with marking each of the individual photos by hand as I did in the early days. So uh, let's switch gears for a few minutes and look at some data. Someone said, once said jokingly, if you don't have charts or tables in your presentation, then it's not science. So here's a partial spreadsheet with functions, which functions as a rough graph showing the frequency of observations and totals for 2020, where I spent about one to three hours or more a day at Wallala Point, Saunders Reef, and to a lesser extent, the Arena Lighthouse on Bodega Head West for a total of 133 observation days. For 2021, I've been logging observation hours also. Like so many others in 2020, my data has a big hole in it due to the shore and beach closures due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Here is where I can answer the question, how do you know if you're counting the same gray whale more than once? Every time I observe a gray whale, I log it. For 2020, I observed and counted 255 gray whales. Of those 255, 98 were multiple sightings of previous or newly identified gray whales. Those 98 sightings of identified gray whales boiled down to just 18 individuals with photo documentation, without the photo documentation for ID, my counts would have been way off. I was in fact counting them a lot more than just once. <clears throat> These are three examples of pages for my field guides, the gray whale yearbooks, which are assembled by year with whales filed alphabetically by name and cross-referenced to an ID number index. Most current years always on top. The photos on the left are left of the page are left lateral views and with the dorsal knuckle as close to center as possible. The right of the page is the right lateral view. Dorsal, the top of the flukes are on the left side of the page and ventral underside flukes are on the right. Other useful data and views, if available, follow in the remaining slots. <clears throat> the guides often changes due to better or more complete series of identification photos for individual gray whales. Occasionally with better documentation, two gray whales turn out to be a single whale and have to be merged. Or there is what I call retro matching, such as the case with Tortuga in the third photo. Most of Tortuga's best ID photos were shot in the better conditions of January, 2021. But when reviewing photos from foggy December, 2020, I found Tortuga in some fog obscured photos. So Tortuga also got a page in 2020 Gray Whale Yearbook. <clears throat> I'd like to dive in here and look at what I find to be some of the most interesting, if not unfortunate, group of gray whales. And these are the swimming wounded. In this section, I want to show the gray whales from our local area who exhibit anthropogenic sources, that is human, and natural sources of injury. This is only a list of the injuries I've photographed, but there are so many other types out there. The etiology of each injury is still up for discussion. My hope is that when I submit my block of gray whale photos to Cascadia Research Collective, we'll come up with matches and more information on these grays. 
At this time, I'd like to show these nine gray whales as examples of injuries which I have photographed in our area. Volley was a visitor to Saunders Reef in mid-August of this year and is one of the more lucky whales, in my humble opinion, sporting only two parallel lacerations consistent with boat propeller uh, injury. Though one is longer and deeper, both appear to be fairly superficial. This is one of the more well-known grays on the Northwest Pacific Coast known as Rambolina, CRC-6. First photographed in 1989 in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. She was seen in the Mexican lagoons with a calf in 2008. She has 10 heel propeller lacerations on her left side up through her dorsal knuckle. I photographed her off the Point Arena Lighthouse in July of 2020, and she was reportedly sighted off the bluffs of the town of Mendocino the year before. Rambolina is a great example of an identified gray whale with a traceable history. Just days ago, I discovered that this gray whale, previously thought to be supernova, is in fact not. So currently, I just call it Whale B. I'll go through my data, look at photos from that time. Whale B has deep parallel left fluke lacerations, most likely due to a boat propeller. The photo shows a fairly fresh uh, recent injury. Left photo might here might be whale B. If so, these were taken 13 days later on September 18th. On the right is a gray whale with a left fluke injury exhibiting tissue necrosis, possibly a more advanced wound than the photo on the left. Both photos were taken the same day, same location, within a minute of each other. So is this another injured whale? Maybe a whale C? These two photos are from a series shot of a gray whale pretty far out from the bluff in Wallala and almost beyond the range of my camera gear. I did a lot of post-processing to make these somewhat usable. The whale was photographed only five days after the previous slides. So the question is, is it whale C with a left fluke injury? In this case, nearly complete left fluke amputation. Is it yet another injured whale? This is Caterpillar. Caterpillar is a small late summer visitor who forged for many hours at Saunders. And I was able to photograph both sides centered on the dorsal knuckle and top and bottom flukes, as well as several other views. It appears that Caterpillar, Caterpillar has been chewed on, most likely by Orca, but has endured. Foul play, previously known as Highway 1, has two thrake marks. A, an asymmetrical injury to the fluke notch and is missing tissue in the left fluke trailing edge consistent with a bite wound. <clears throat> this gray whale is Supernova, who was documented as part of the Pacific Coast Feeding Group and cataloged by Cascadia Research and Happy Whale. It's thought that this gray whale has been entangled, shed the gear, but not before losing nearly most of its left fluke. Tracking supernova has turned into a group effort since this whale seems to really get around. He or she was photographed on June 24th in Depot Bay, Oregon of 2020, September 5th, 2020 by a Wallala resident who took close-up photos from the beach, November 11th, 2020 at Wallala Point by me, and January 21st by resident Sea Ranch 
Um, and most recently, October 19th, 2021, near Depot Bay, Oregon. I'm certain Supernova has a CRC number and I'll record it with the others as the winter part of my project. Fear Notch is so named for what immediately looked to be evidence of an entanglement. The flukes show rope scars and there is damage to the notched area where trailing gear tends to thread into causing abrasions or even lacerations of the surrounding tissue. Deer Notch appears to have been fortunate enough to have shed the gear and she he also bears the classic lightning bolt patterns of orchid tooth rakes on the fluke tips. The left-hand photo was taken by a visitor with a camera phone and a spotting scope. They called this gray whale Seymour. Seymour has only paddle-like flukes showing healed white scars of an injury so severe that both fluke tips have been amputated and there is significant remodeling to the affected notch and surrounding areas. These wounds may be consistent with a severe entanglement injury, though it appears that Seymour has shed the gear, there's severe damage and a lot of fluke tissue has been lost. And finally, this is a gray whale I call Tabby. Tabby has, left, has a left fluke deformity, which is most likely an entanglement injury. Tabby's another gray whale who gets around. Happy Whale has cataloged, has a cataloged photo of this whale in Depot Bay, Oregon in 2019. I first photographed cat Tabby on January 19th, 2021 at Saunders Reef. And again, on April 23rd, 2021, about 60 miles south of at Bodega Head. And finally, on August 12th, 2021, back on Saunders Reef. Tabby is the last gray whale photographed this summer and fall. This time of year, I was documenting gray whales throughout fall and a few into winter before the usual migration season. I'm just not seeing them here this fall. Before I finish up, I'd like to say thank you to the people who continue to support and collaborate with me on this project. Thank you, Spat and Tree Mercer, for giving this project a, a purpose. And thank you to Norma Jellison and many others who have fueled my passion for gray whales. I'd like to conclude this presentation with this short video of these amazing gray whales involved in shenanigans on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 2021. They're just doing what they do. Thank you, Sherry Goforth, Abby, and Richard Charter for those presentations. I just have to say thank you so much again to Sherry for pulling that together for us. And for those of you who are watching this Ocean Life Symposium on KGOA's YouTube channel, the information you have gotten from both of these speakers as they share their photos and their videos has been an enormous amount of information and wealth about the mammals, the cetaceans that are offshore. You know, and here at KGOA, we are in Gualala, on the southern tip of the Mendocino Coast, and we are so dedicated to ocean life. And our friends Scott and Tree Mercer from the Mendonoma Whale and Seal Study have pulled together this symposium. We're so proud of them and to be able to work with them. And you notice that Sherry Goforth AB called herself a citizen scientist. It's very important to understand that this is a volunteer, but you see, we uh, will share some photos, but for those of you who are, who are listening only, the meticulous notebooks she takes, 
uh, of all the information of the whales that she has been seeing, how she learned to identify them, and she works with other whale organizations. It's just a, a, an amazing amount of work that she does. And uh, we're now going to say hi to our friends Scott and Tree Mercer from the Mendonoma Whale and Seal Study. Good morning, you guys. Good morning. Good morning. Great. Thank you so much, you two, for bringing this to us. You two both are actually scientists, have been working on studying whales and seals for decades. Decades. Scott actually used to also run whale sighting boats off of the coast of New England many years ago, and Teresa's a former science teacher. So you guys, what do you think about the presentations that we've seen so far, Richard Charter and, of course, Sherry Goforth-Aby, who you know pretty well? Well, Richard, as always, was just phenomenal, and he has the great insight to his work in Washington with politicians and legislators. So having Richard his second time with us, yeah, uh, first year we spoke, uh, we had it this up in Mendocino in a, as an in-person event, and Richard was unable to make it. But yeah, last year, of course, how can I forget that? Richard um, participated this way online, and today's talk, uh, despite his travel plans and the storm we just had, was just wonderful. Sherry has been a huge help to us, and she realized early on that we needed some help. We couldn't be every place at once, and she's very mobile out there on the coast. And her work is very meticulous, too. And as you saw, the note-taking that she does. And I remember the first photo she took that, she, that I took a look at was that whale Rambo, which has now been renamed Rambolina. She sent it to me. I was home. And I got an email. And it was so good, I sent it to Cascadia Research. And within 15 minutes, John Kalamokitas, a very highly esteemed whale biologist, got back to me and said, uh, yes, we know this whale. And he gave me the sighting record of it. And it turned out that Rambo was actually a female because the whale had been seen down in the Mexican lagoons with a calf. <laughs> that was the timer. <laughs> yeah. Like the egg was ready. All right. We'll get. We'll just get, wrap up what you were saying, Scott. Okay. The video that Sherry had, as I was watching it, I could see what eventually what it's turning out to be. It was, I guess you call whale foreplay. A couple of gray whales going through courtship activity out here. This is an area where we usually see the courtship northbound while they're heading back up to their feeding grounds, which is a little late because courtship should be taking place southbound and, and in the lagoons in Mexico, uh, we think. But at this point, those are usually just males who may have struck out down in the lagoons and are a bit frustrated and they're pretty, pretty randy still by the time they get up here and they see a female go by and they just try their hardest. All right, Scott. I think we're going to be your last words there for this moment in time on our, our Ocean Life Symposium. But great stuff from them. And thank you, Scott and Tree, who we'll hear from throughout this series. This is the very first day of our Ocean Life Symposium. And I want to remind you that you can send questions and comments comments about anything that you're hearing any speaker to one long word ocean life symposium at gmail.com and we have a whole crew of people in here who are monitoring and getting everything assembled as we have the first two of 19 speakers who are coming up all this week This has been a special broadcast of the third annual Ocean Life Symposium, which took place the last week of October, organized by Mendonoma Whale and Seal Study and KGUA Public Media in Wallala. The symposium was originally broadcast on KGUA and streamed online at their YouTube page. It included a week of presentations by local and national experts about the health of our oceans. 
You can find out more about the Ocean Life Symposium and hear all of the presentations from the week by visiting kgua.org or checking out the KGUA channel on YouTube. This is Alicia Bales. I hope you enjoyed this program. Coming up next is Max Colfax with This Day in History, followed by Get On Up with Kathy Rippey. Thanks for listening to KZYX, and have a fantastic Friday night. Beside the ocean On the cliffs above the sea No one else on the heights up there Just the gulls and you and me We spoke long and we spoke true as we gazed out on the ocean The sun sank west when day was through And it healed all sad emotion You told me of your traveling days And I told you of my own You said your heart's the only thing That you can truly own Travelers are gardeners Story scenes are sown And the heart can bloom in freedom When you've taken to the wrong Upon the mountainside The bees in the flowers They are humming The bright clouds pass And I'm content June is surely coming This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.